0: Sai dear listeners, welcome to today's segment of Afternoon Satsang where we will be continuing to go through the nectarous story of Lord Sri Rama as penned by our dear Lord Bhagwan Sri Sai Baba. This will possibly be the last fortnight, uh, I mean the penultimate fortnight for the Ramayana because as we have seen last week also, we are coming towards the end of the story. And in fact, the fag end of the story, because Ravana has been vanquished, it was interesting that uh, we were enjoying the story of celebration of victory of good over evil and how good prospers after its victory over evil in the last week, which happened to be the Dasara week also. Another beautiful coincidence by Bhagawan's grace. So, we shall now continue to see how... This Ramaraja came about not just by a stroke of luck but by hard effort and a lot of things that Lord Sri Rama put in place. It is wonderful because it makes us reminisce on many beautiful things that our dear Swami has put in place to ensure that purity, perseverance, patience and all the five D's that Swami speaks about, duty, devotion, dedication, all these that All these uh, propagate, percolate into everyone and remain permanently. So with that idea we shall go further into the things that Lord Sri Rama did. But before we do that as always we shall begin by contemplating on the sweet name of Lord Sri Rama which I am sure that Hanuman who is ever present wherever the Ramakatha is sung will also enjoy that kind of a beginning.
1: श्री राम Rama रामे No
2: The last time when we left you off, dear listeners, we were discussing about what Swami had written. Uh, one typical day in the life or in the kingdom of Ayodhya where Swami was talking of how the four brothers would go out on uh, walks, which actually were times when Rama would counsel the brothers about various philosophical topics. And uh, Interesting to note, you know, some of these old devotees would tell us um, came to Swami in the early 50s or even in the, till the late 50s, there was no concept of Swami giving an interview in a room. Mm. Interviews were always long walks. <laughs> Swami would, uh, you know, we all knew that Swami would go to the Chitravati. So even sometimes, as he is going to Chitravati, Swami will take some one or two of the uh, devotees who are there and move away from the group and go for a walk and come back. And many times that is the interview which Swami is giving that person. So literally, in that sense, Rama is giving interview to his brothers here, who are in many ways. The first disciples of uh, Rama, in fact, we saw this even in the uh, in the time when Rama is spending uh, the the time that Rama was spending in the forest, hmm. where Rama was giving a few important lessons in the form of a conversation with Lakshmana and uh, Mother Sita so last week, we spoke about how Rama defines who is a good person and who is a bad person, and uh, Swami describes of another conversation which happens between the brothers where rama speaks about uh, human life and you know what actually is uh, what what one must do in the human life to progress forward from this birth
0: in that uh, rama emphasizes on the importance of doing good on helping everyone irrespective of who he or she is and uh, it is here that the famous quotation uh, comes Where Rama says that having written the 18 Puranas, Vyasa arrived at the, you know, the summation, the fruit of all the 18 Puranas, and that is help ever, hurt never. In Sanskrit that goes as Ashtadasha Puraneshu, Vyasasya Vachanadvayam, Paropakaraaya Punyaya, Papaya Parapidanam, which means basically the same thing, that uh, when you distill the essence of the 18 Puranas, It finally lands on two phrases or two statements by Vyasa which is love all, help, love all, serve all, help ever, hurt never. That's what it is because uh, uh, Rama emphasizes saying that if you are not in a position to help or assist someone, at least refrain from hurting them. And he says this is because I am the one who meets out your karmic results. I will bestow on you the rewards of the good you do and you will have to face the consequences of the bad that you do and I will ensure that you receive that also. So, it's a kind of a incentive and a threat at the same time with Rama being the supreme judge and the one who decides what is good and what is not good. In that sense, it is like, you know, the Lord is the one who is actually doing because He is the one who achieves results. We are just witnessing what the Lord is doing and and therefore we have to just ensure that our thoughts are pure, our words are pure, our deeds are pure because what we achieve as a result of that is totally in Rama's hands. That is the impression that Lord Rama gives as he discourses on this.
2: Right. In fact, you know, this is one mistake which most of us do when we are trying to understand God and God's ways. We have spoken enough about it like... You know, when God is all loving and compassionate, how is it that people suffer? And this is one point we very conveniently forget that God is also the dispenser of justice, hmm. which what Rama is reminding here. I am the one who rewards as well as I am the one who punishes too. And, and, and that is what defines what we've you know, gone through in the story also. The way the response which Rama had towards Vibhishna versus that towards Ravana and that towards the various demons in the forest uh, versus the simple and pious souls like Guha and others. So I think this is one point that he makes I think one more point which he speaks of is, uh, as you, I think, did you mention karma Which uh, Yes, that is what he... Right. That is one thing which typically what is spoken of in the Bhagavad Gita, he says that, you know, nobody can escape from action, but action has to be done. The moment somebody does action perfectly, even when not expecting or desiring for the fruits of one's action, that action itself is slowly freeing you from action. That action itself will relieve you from the reaction, the, reaction the repercussions of it, as well as will be conferring wisdom on your mind. And uh, that is one point that he makes. Uh,
0: I remember a few years ago, it was possibly during an Ashadi Ekadashi celebration where the devotees from Mumbai put up a drama. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that drama, the question that was asked was, uh, is it that God is the doer and we are the witness? Or is it that we are the doer and God is a witness? And it was very interesting for me because uh, I had heard and I have come across both these things in play. For example, when we hear Rama speaking, of how he dispenses justice and how he rewards, it becomes clear that Rama is doing everything. You know, we we are just a witness. But there have been many cases where, you know, I have heard also Swami say that God is just like a postman. He delivers to you what what you deserve. You know, it is, it is you who have uh, created your own good or bad through your own actions. And therefore, God is simply a witness. Don't praise him for what you get. Don't blame him for what you get which you don't like so this was indeed a very interesting question and uh, in my humble opinion i just feel that both are true both are true it's like asking does a bus take you to your destination or does a train take you to the destination actually both can take you to the destination but what doesn't work is you can't travel in both that is the thing you either take a bus or you take a train in the same way All our life, we either lead with the philosophy that God is a witness and I am the one who is doing actions. Then what happens is, yes, I can celebrate the victories that I get, but I should also know that the failures I get and things that go wrong in my life, whether I am aware of it or not, I am only responsible because God is simply a witness. That's my philosophy, right? I can't blame Him. Just like I am not ready to credit Him for my successes, I can't blame Him for any of my failures because I have... Defined that God is simply a witness. I am the one who is doing whatever I am. At the same time, if you take the other way, you know, where you say that I am the witness, God is the doer, then also actually it stops us from complaining because God is doing everything and if I have trust in His eternal wisdom, in His wisdom being better than mine, then why should I complain? Though things look off or though things look bad from my limited perspective, if I have faith that the Lord's wisdom is infinite, then I still don't complain. So uh the sum and bonus the sum total of this comes to whether I follow the philosophy that God is a witness and I am the doer, or whether I follow the philosophy that God is a doer and I am a witness. In either case there is no room for us to complain, you know. So the problem is we take uh the uh the thing that is convenient to us from both sides, ensuring that in whatever situation we are in, we keep complaining. <laughs> but again, once again, in my humble opinion, I feel out of these two, it's always better to uh, take the path that God is the doer. He is the one that rewards. He is the one who punishes. He knows his justice is ultimate. And I am just witnessing. Because, because you know, uh, it gives rise to the sense of surrender which is always easier Uh, and I am not talking from a philosophical point of view, even say if we take day to day things uh, suppose somebody in the family is sick I find it easier to go and entrust myself to a doctor rather than try to research everything is there on the internet today But rather than research the entire thing and find out causes, I always feel it more comfortable and convenient to entrust completely in the hands of the doctor and allow the doctor to take decisions. If you look at the financial front, though all information about all companies, about all businesses, everything is very well listed on the internet, I still prefer to possibly go through a mutual fund or go through some other investment house and entrust my earnings, my wealth to them and trust that they will manage it well. So, I I just feel that by nature, we find it easier to find somebody we trust and then just give over everything to them and relax. So, in the same sense, if we can do the same with our life, uh, it will be wonderful. And that's why I feel that though these two are equally applicable philosophies of God being the witness or God being the doer, it's always... More comfortable for me at least personally to take God as a doer and me as a witness and to just witness and enjoy all that God is doing
2: But I think in many ways you know whatever you said is it 's about the approach to life as you're saying that the problem with most of us is I think we are we are uh, shuttling between both approaches at one point we, we act as though we have control and when things go out of control, then we complain, you know, that that's the whole problem and that is where the confusion comes. But I think subtly, probably both of this is true, you know, both of it is happening. Uh, someone was giving an example of, the uh, you know, Swami himself has given, but somebody was explaining it. He said, you know, just like different bulbs are there and different bulbs shine with different uh, you know, intensity and color and brightness, depending on their own wattage and their own make, Right. You call a bulb probably faulty when it does not, uh, when it does not glow to its potential or work to it till its potential. So I mean, just let's say that the bulb has an ability to choose to, you know, glow or not glow. Hmm. So then you say that the bulb has to glow to its best ability, right? So then he said that even when you are glowing to the best ability, you don't forget the fact that whether you're glowing 50% of your intensity. Or 100% of intensity, you're glowing only because of the power that's, you know, uh, flowing through your wires. Right? So he said that even when you are doing your best, you have to acknowledge the fact that even me functioning to the best will not give this result if there is no power flowing through this thing. And it is that power which you attribute to God's will and God's action. Mm. So it is like at one stage you are, I mean, at one level you're trying to do the best you can do. And the other level, you're also trying to acknowledge this fact all the time, that even me being the best does not complete the story. It is actually the power which is flowing through me, which is the doer. So, I mean that every everybody, I mean you were talking about this is the best approach. I think everybody will eventually have to acknowledge that it is not me, it is the doer, which is divine, the divine doer, which is in me, which is operating through me.
0: And no wonder that. Rama follows it up with a discourse on karma faratyaga because he says that you know, in addition to what he had said previously as defining a good person and a bad person, I think he reiterates here by saying that a good person is he who has the greatest quality of detachment. And when he says detachment, it is not about giving up everything and sitting in solitude or isolation, but in being detached from the results of one's action and uh, Rama says that see when you do with a desire of achieving something, then that desire to achieve that, that itself binds you and basing on whether you achieve it or not leads to your further actions, you know, because, because the success of your action depends on whether you achieve it. If you achieve it in a wonderful manner, it might result in pride. If you don't achieve it, it results in frustration, different things, different things happen when you are focused on the result. But if you are finding joy in just doing the action to its perfection in itself, then irrespective of what happens, you are able to, you know, uh, be in a state of equanimity. Because suppose it is a success, you do not celebrate or exult because that was not your objective. Your objective was in just doing the action perfectly. (laughs) Your uh, joy or peace is not dependent on It's success. In the same uh, logic, if it's a failure, it will not disappoint you because your joy and peace depended only on you doing the action, not on its result. And it is no surprise that Rama says that the greatest quality of good people is this sense of detachment.
2: Right. Rama actually goes on to say that this is how saints and sages live and this is how they earn my grace. In fact, uh, it's so beautiful that in this paragraph, Swami writes it entirely. In first person, you know, Rama says that this is how they worship me. This is how they reach me. This is how they please me. Hmm. And, you know, revealing probably that all that worship and all that goodness actually is an offering to me. He doesn't speak as a king, but he speaks as a, you know, divine avatar during that point. And then uh, Swami goes on to describe, of, you know, just like how Swami says that Rama was counseling his brothers, Swami says that Rama would also often call the citizens to the darbar and have, you know, an extensive session where he describes to them about what is good and bad, what is right conduct, and what is what is dharma and why is it important to live up to that.
0: And it's interesting, you know, because he begins talking to the citizens by saying that uh, I'm not trying to dictate on you or I'm not trying to impose things on you, but just know this much that those who listen to me and follow what I say will be dear to me. I feel that's such a beautiful incentive because that's exactly how Swami functioned. He never imposed anything on all of us. But, those of us who followed what He said, who were, who made attempts, who made efforts to practice what He said, definitely in His own way, in a very special, unique manner, Swami indicated to each one of us that He is happy. And in fact, that was the incentive for us to follow what Swami said. You know, Though you know we have a roster which takes our attendance in Suprabhatam and sees how much uh, is our attendance, whether we are 80% we have attended or 90% we have attended. Those of us who chose to use Suprabhatam as a way, uh, uh, those of us who chose to go attend Suprabhatam and try to get 100% attendance there, irrespective of whether we are sick or not, I'm sure that we did it not because we wanted to get a certificate at the end of a year, end of the year from the hostel saying that this is a person who has attended 100% Suparatam. We did it with the feeling that somewhere that sincerity will go and touch Swami and Swami will be happy and that's why I did it. It was absolutely not possible for each one of us to follow every kind of discipline and rigor in the hostel. No wonder Swami said that if the students follow hostel life, that's enough for them to get the ultimate in life because it's not easy to follow everything in the hostel. But each one of us chose different things to follow with all sincerity and I'm sure we chose to follow it more than anything else we chose because we felt that it would make Swami happy. And that is the way Rama is also telling his uh, subjects. He is discoursing on a number of things. And I feel it becomes uh, humanly impossible to follow everything that he is saying. But Rama says that those who follow this or anything of this, they are the ones who are dear to me. So therefore he gives an incentive for people to follow. It's not that you should do this for anything else. Just do it because you want to be dear to Lord Rama.
2: In the other thing is, you know, there, are, there are, I think two chapters here which Swami speaks about this, this entire conversation which happens with the brothers and with the, with the people in, in, the court. in mm. the court and, you know, so many such things. I think these are, these are hints which Swami is dropping because when you read the Ramayana, Swami says that you're supposed to draw examples from that. You're supposed to, you know, you can emulate what Rama did. But when you read this, Definitely we are never going to be a king of a kingdom and we are not going to have this opportunity or occasion where we are going to have convene a court and speak to the people. But you know what Swami says is, after this Swami is going to extensively describe what Ramaraja is. Right? One thing is about the people, how they were living and the other thing is about the administration. How it was administered and how everything was provided and everything was in place. The reason why Swami I feel is talking about how Rama spoke to His citizens and Swami said He would do this very regularly is, you know, when you are a person in charge of something, let's say you are a team leader, let's say you are a boss in a company, or let's say even if you are the man of the house and you have three children or four children or two children or whatever it is, it is not enough if you provide all that is required and if you put all the checks and balances in place. It's also important to time and again communicate you know, what is the right direction, what is the purpose of the whole setup, like what Rama is doing. It's not enough if, you know, being a father or a mother, you just provide all the things which the children need, put them in a good school and put them in the right classes and, you know, say that I've done what is needed. It is very important for a person to communicate and say that this is good, this is wrong, this is right, this is... And as you said, you know, Rama starts by saying that I'm not going to impose anything on you. It doesn't mean that these are dictates which have to be followed. He doesn't say that. But he says, this is right and wrong. This is what I need to tell you. So I think when we read this, yes, we might not be a ruler of a land, but within our own areas of influence and authority, I think we have to take these examples. Do what is right, as we would see in how Swami says that Ramaraja was administered. At the same time, you know, spend the time to communicate what is right, what is wrong and to counsel especially if those who are younger to you or those who are going to look up to you and learn from you. That becomes very important.
0: You know uh, when you brought up this I was reminded of a piece that I had read by one of these authors in India I forget now who it is Uh, it's relevant here uh, in more than one sense and before that let me uh, say this thing that this kind of uh, Writing is possible, I feel, only in the Bharatya culture. Because, you know, uh, no one is beyond criticism. Everyone is allowed to be criticized. There is nobody like absolute. We see in the Ramayana itself. In fact, uh, as we proceed, we will see an episode that happens where the brothers criticize Rama also. So, you see, though we have a concept of an absolute and the one who is beyond anything, Beyond everything and uh, anything that we know of, it still doesn't stop us from criticizing. That is the kind of freedom that comes in the Bharatiya culture. I'm sure you, me, all of us have had our own experiences where with Swami we have not always had a, you know, a kind of a, a loving and peaceful talk in either in the inner recess of our heart or at our altars or in some cases even directly face to face with Swami. Things have got heated and we have spoken. And I feel that is one aspect we should not forget because it's not always lovey-dovey with God, you know. Uh, With our own parents, for example, though we love them so much, we have our disagreements, we have our verbal duels, right? So, this person has written very interestingly saying, let's look at one of Lord Krishna's sons, Samba. Mm. And, uh, you know, Samba, throughout his life has been a very mischievous one, has got into trouble many times. And in fact, he was responsible, ultimately, uh, instrumental for bringing down the whole Yadava clan. Okay. Because he is the one who hides the iron pestle and acts like a pregnant woman and goes to a sage and asks, right. "Can you guess what is the gender of this unborn child?" And the Rushi understands he is playing a prank, and he says that you will give birth to an iron pestle which will destroy the y- y- Yadukula, the Yadava clan. So, actually, he has listed in detail about Samba and written that. This is possibly one of the few minuses of Lord Krishna that he didn't spend enough time with Samba. He says, though you you have done so much of good for the universe, the fact that you were not there as a father for your own son showed what a thing it can do because this same son went and destroyed the entire Yadava kingdom which you had built up. So you see, on one hand you have built so much and this has happened. And as I say, the writer is able to write with such freedom because the Bharatiya culture allows you to criticize anything and everything, including our gods. And then he, you know, beautifully the author extrapolates and says that, see, this is important. This is precisely what you were stressing on. Saying that it's not enough that you do your job at office and say, I am earning for the kids, I am doing this fine, everything is in place, the checks and balance are in place. No, it is not equally important is to spend time with your children spend time with whatever and you know as you said it is not only about rama with uh, not only about you being a king in order to follow rama even if you're a normal householder and yeah you have one wife and two children three members who are looking up to you as their leader yes you have to do this you have to give time to each and everyone and as you rightly put it that is what rama is showing and that is what That is the leaf we have to take out of this book. Not that we need to uh, rule an empire to spend time, but whoever depends on us or whoever looks up to us, it's important that we spend time with them and not only take care of their material benefit or other comforts, but actually give part of ourselves to them.
2: And absolutely. In fact, you know, that's what they say that when you give time to somebody, you're actually giving your life. Because your life is made up of time. Right? Mm. That every minute you give another person, you're giving a minute from your life. And that's what is so important. But one point about you know, criticizing uh, some of the actions of the Avatar and all that. Mm. I mean, I, I think we mentioned this before. It should always come from a place of faith. It should always come from a place where, you know, I, I have full devotion for the Lord. I have full. And there is this earnest desire to understand all His actions and to learn from that. You know, when, when the criticism comes from that place, certainly, even if you're wrong, even if your criticism is wrong, I think you will benefit from it, you will learn the right things from it. But, you know, the problem is when you are outside the ambit of faith and you're trying to criticize. In fact, uh, even as you were saying that, I was reminded of, you know, this is the time where Dashara is celebrated, that Ram Leela is celebrated, Correct. especially in North India. And you have all of these left liberals starting to comment on the Ramayana. that's the time when (laughs) everybody will start surfacing can you imagine one of the history professors from a premier institute in the country Hmm. uh, JNU right she puts out a tweet saying that after all Ravana seemed to be a very good person what is wrong in abducting Sita and imagine she's a lady it's a lady professor who's putting out a tweet like this and I mean it is absurd in so many levels forget you are mocking at an epic forget you are mocking at a person whom millions of people look up to as a divine incarnation but even as a story imagine just for the sake of debunking the story or just for the sake of criticizing uh, people's faith, you are actually questioning something which is morally wrong even today Mm. you know a man who is abducting another person's wife is wrong in any culture in any uh, age in, 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 in any scenario but just because you want to put down a character who is you know, so uh, reputed, whatever it is, you're trying to... And there is this fashion of, uh, you know, playing up the negative role. You you want to uh, praise the negative and say that, you know, the negative is also uh, has to be accepted and you start praising Ravana and, you know, how much of misunderstanding you create and by saying that... It's almost like suggesting that it's nothing wrong if you have the power to take what you desire and as long as you have the power to abduct what you really want it becomes like a, a any other championship or challenge you know there's nothing wrong in that so it always has to come from a place of faith where you you know you really wish and desire and sincerely want to learn from the character and then you see that probably this was a flaw probably this is something which i cannot emulate you know i do not have the purity to emulate this aspect of the character of rama krishna
0: Absolutely, absolutely. What point you are making is very, very valid. And, uh, yes, as I said, because Swami is so dear to me, yes, I have, uh, praised Him in the most beautiful of words. I have also fought with Him in the bitterest of words. But, as you rightly say, it comes out of genuine deep love. I must, I mean, I am, I say it is definitely like that. But I can definitely see what you're referring no, to because in fact, you know, of, of late that has become like the fashion trend.
2: Right. In fact, you know, Swami would say about that Kriti which Tyagaraja writes, right? Hmm. Uh, nalo bhakti leda, nilo shakti leda, he says. Correct. I'm in problem you're not solving and you know, he is very, very upset with Rama, not uh, probably some problem he's in, he's facing. And Sami says, imagine, see that is what devotion does to you. He's angry and he's questioning the Lord this very second line of the kriti, he says, No, Rama, shakti is definitely there in you. My bhakti is only lacking. So I have to work on it. And Swami says, you know, that's what happens when it really, even criticism, even anger, even when you're upset with the Lord, it comes from devotion. It has the ability to correct you. It has the ability to make you progress. And I think that's
0: why, you know, when Rama has called all the citizens in the dharbar hall, the message that he is giving them is so beautiful. He is giving them just this... He's saying, let God be the goal of your life. You know, it doesn't matter if you criticize God, if you do anything with God, as long as God is the center of your When God is the center of your life, it is natural that He will be the center of your love, He will be the center of your anger, He will be the center of your joys, He will be the center of your sorrows. In that case, it is alright. But as you said, I enjoy and God is... I don't listen to the G of God also any time in my life. And only when it comes to criticism and the negatives, I take God and smash God. I don't think uh, it affects God in any manner. It just brutally will affect you in manner that you don't even know. And again, this I am telling based on faith. Because, you know, the other day you were talking about how Swami told the students that, dear children, whatever may happen, please refrain from... You know, simply criticizing or speaking ill of Swami because you have no idea of what will happen. It was almost like Swami Himself was helpless to prevent what will happen. Out of genuine love, Swami was saying like that. So, I have complete faith in that and therefore I feel it is like that. But, if it is coming in this manner where God is the centre of your life, then it is natural that anything that you feel, anything that you think, anything that you speak, anything that you do will God will have God as the centre. Uh, that's why you know I feel God should not be a part of our life. God should be the center of our life, and that is what Rama is exhorting here. He's telling, let God be the center of your life. And Rama is saying, this is not for God's sake. This is because a human life is so rare. It is such a blessed thing. It's only a human being that has the capacity to recognize and identify God, and therefore, don't don't waste human life on any other thing. Don't fritter away this opportunity. Rama further goes on to say all these worldly pleasures that you are seeking are nothing but poisons because ultimately they lead you to death. They don't lead you to immortality. It's only God who can lead you to immortality. Speaking of these worldly things as poisons, you know, I'm reminded of one little uh, uh, anecdote actually. This happened mm-hmm. in uh, grade 12. Okay. Uh, our class teacher, you know, uh, Dr. Sailesh Srivastava, he had come to the classroom and he was telling us, uh, he was asking us, you know, he was saying, if, suppose I tell you that here is a poisoned mango. okay, Will you eat that poisoned mango? We said, no, sir, <laughs> we won't eat because you'll die. Okay, now let me tell you, this poison is a special kind of poison that will not kill you now. It will kill you only after five years. Will you eat the poisoned mango? I said, no, sir. <laughs> Why? You're gonna enjoy it and nothing's gonna happen for five years. I said no, sir. It's gonna it's gonna kill after okay. If you don't want to have it, how about this? Eat this poison mango. It will gradually kill you, and finally it'll kill you only after twenty years. Mm-hmm. So for twenty years you're definitely gonna live. Don't worry. I said no, sir. Then you know the most amazing thing came when he said that this mango will kill you hundred percent, but. It will take about 50 to 60 years. We said no sir. Then he said, you know what the average life expectancy in this country at this point in time is less than 70. And since you are all nearing 20, <laughs> uh, there is a very good chance that you anyway you will die at 70. Mm-hmm. So this mango is only going to kill you if you cross 70. Why don't you eat it? No sir. You know the very uh, knowledge that this is a poison. A slow poison, irrespective of how long it takes to kill, we will not be eating it. And then, you know, Silisa at that point in time said, that is how the worldly desires are. They are slow poisons. And just like you said that you will not be ready to eat this mango even if it takes 50 years to kill you, then why do you go after worldly desires? Because ultimately, how many ever, ever years it may take, it may take even lifetimes. But these worldly desires lead you only towards mrityu and not towards amritam. And we always pray ma amritam amritangamaya. We pray lead me from death to immortality but we always choose the world which leads us towards death. Uh, this anecdote, you know, it firmly registered in my head because however slow the poison, once we know it's poison, we won't select it. So however pleasurable it may be, you know, the mango is very pleasurable. However sweet it may appear, if it is, if we know that it's a poison, we will just abhor it, avoid it, irrespective of how sweet it is. The same, uh, you know, that is what Rama is telling in the uh, Darbar Hall. He's telling them that let this life be for God alone. Because if you take it towards the world, it is definitely going to get poisoned.
2: And, uh, you know, a point which you made earlier where he says that, you know, the only worthwhile goal to have for life is, you know, to have the have God as one's goal I think that defines it's not like uh, you know world has to be, I mean all the pleasures of the world have to be given up it's not like all the sensual pleasures have to be given up and you, you lead your life without eating good food and without mm. you know indulging in anything that gives any kind of pleasure to you he's saying that don't keep these as your goal you know when you go through life you will definitely it's it's like you know when, when probably when you're journeying from here to Bangalore or from here to uh, Hyderabad you're going by a Uh, you know you're going for a long drive imagine the lot of the sights which you see on the way you will enjoy on the way you know there is a beautiful rainbow you see you will enjoy it and probably you drive past a garden you will enjoy it you may stop at a restaurant have some good food but you all the while know that that's not my goal you will not get lost in it Hmm. and that's what Rama is saying don't keep that as your goal because human life has been got after so much of effort and it has been given to you it's one of the greatest blessings that has been given to you so all the while the the Question in your mind should be: Is how do I make best use of it? So, definitely enjoy the pleasures that come on, come in your way. But you kind of, you know, use and throw. You, you live it in that moment and you let go. You don't make that as your aspiration. You don't make that as your uh, the guidepost. That's what Rama says. That you know, you make don't make the pleasures which come in samsara as your guideposts. Keep don't only. Make them your
0: I I can just imagine, Prem, imagine uh, if you stop on the journey, you see some beautiful sight and somebody next to you says, look at that, look at that, that's beautiful. There's a rabbit over there, for example, you see and oh, I miss the rabbit. And now you say that, no, no, I have to see the rabbit and you get down from the car, go chasing the rabbit. It becomes evening, you know, in the process of pursuing the rabbit, you have entirely missed your goal. So that kind of a mistake we should not do. Yes, if you happen to sight a rabbit, enjoy it. But if you don't happen to sight it, don't pursue the rabbit so much so that your ultimate goal gets uh, disturbed. Yes, if you have money, enjoy it. If you have a wonderful relationship, enjoy it. If you get good food, enjoy it. But don't lead your life for the pursuit of good food, for the pursuit of relationships or for the pursuit of money. Because life is for the pursuit of one goal and that goal is God.
2: I think our case is the other way around. You know, We are actually lost our way and we are enjoying in the by of life. And suddenly somebody is saying, hey, there comes your goal. Actually. <laughs> and then we kind of get distracted from our worldly pleasures and then get you know, get a glimpse of our goal and probably some sadbhuti is Momentary focus in, towards right, the goal. And momentary focus towards the goal and probably we are saying that let me not miss this goal this time, let me go after it. And that's what Swami has done with us, I guess. Uh,
0: one more important thing that Rama tells to uh, the citizens, which again struck me because we have heard Swami say this, is that though there is the karma marga, jnana marga and bhakti marga, the bhakti marga, the path of devotion is the best. The path of knowledge is beset with many dangers. In fact, during the Dasra, there was a discourse in which Rama is, uh, I mean Swami is comparing Jnana marga to a thick wild animal infested forest. It is beautiful and nurturing no doubt, but you never know where dangers are lurking. And therefore Swami would say avoid Jnana, use bhakti. In fact, uh, Swami in the discourse went on to say, even those who follow the Jnana Marga, they become dear to me. They can achieve the ultimate only when they become dear to me. And they become dear to me only through bhakti. And you know what? I get goosebumps as I see it because that's exactly what Rama is telling the citizens. He's telling them there that even those who follow Jnana, they become dear to me only if they have devotion. I feel this is a very, very important statement for us to cherish and treasure and keep in mind because as you said, off late nowadays we are seeing so many of these so-called intellectuals whom I feel are actual pseudo-intellectuals who rubbish God, who you know actually speak ill against God because they say everything is one. When everything is one, what is the need to adore something else as above? And I think this point was made even last week. The point here is, if you genuinely feel everyone, everything is one, everybody is one, if you feel I am same as you, then I am sure you will be extra careful to ensure that you don't speak or do things which will cause me hurt. Because causing me hurt is equivalent to you getting hurt yourself. And when I have so much of regard and love for some being as my God, how can you tarnish the image of that being and uh, heap scathing criticism on that being and then say all are one? I don't see any of the Advaitins that we know of, be it Shankaracharya or, or, you know, any other sage or saint. I don't think they have spoken derogatory against anybody. In fact, the next thing that Rama says there is that, he tells his citizens, don't distinguish between Shiva and Kesava. Can you imagine any other leader speaking in this manner, you know? Rama himself is saying, don't, don't distinguish between, he is praising all, he is praising all and I feel that is one of the signs of a truly evolved soul or truly realized soul or the avatar. Because the avatar knows the ultimate truth, knows that there is no difference between God and man and everything. But even then the avatar is compassionate, is having love, is having concern, is showing care. These are the other things that, you know, uh, Rama tells the citizens in the hall.
2: Right, and the the other point which Rama makes, which Swami tells here is <clears throat> he, he tells the citizens that don't attribute any distinction between Lord Shiva and Keshava. You know, mm-hmm. they are all the same. I mean, what you were saying about those who believe in God and those who don't believe in God. I think the same distinction when you believe in Lord Shiva or believe in Keshava. You know, it finally comes to when you are perfect in devotion, when you are, your devotion is taking you closer to God as Swami has said, I think he said this to Dr. Hislop. He said, the more you will feel empathy towards the other person, the more you will be able to see from that person's point of view. Like, if I am so devoted to Lord Shiva and if I am, you know, so mature in my devotion to Lord Shiva, I will be able to relate to the devotion that you have to Lord Krishna or Lord Rama. You know, I will not find any discord in, in trying to relate to that. So similarly, if, let us say that you have perfected in your idea of atheism, In the sense that everybody is equal and all are created equal, I think that will lead you towards a certain amount of enhanced empathy. You know, you will not, you will not uh, deride somebody else's faith and deride somebody else's devotion and try to put down somebody to say that what I believe in is superior. You know, that's what happens. I mean, this is not only for atheists, it's even for devotees of the Lord. You know, even those who believe in God kind of try to you know put themselves on a pedestal and say that i am more fortunate than you are which which is true in many ways but it is not in that sense of you having to stamp upon somebody to raise yourself
0: you get bragging right.
2: right the more you go closer to god the more you will find you know when you feel that there is somebody who is lacking in the faith that you have you might probably feel sympathy for that person but you will not feel uh, hatred towards that person you know you will not feel some kind of uh, irritation about that person
0: And the way Rama expresses this to the citizens, uh, the citizens also offer their gratitude to Rama. It's not like uh, it's just something that Rama is speaking. The citizens are able to absorb it and they genuinely feel the difference and they are able to uh, use what Rama has said to enhance their own lives. So, uh, Swami writes about a citizen who gets up and speaks glowingly in terms of Rama and credits Rama for everything. In fact, the citizen credits Rama for the good that he is doing. Uh, in the sense, the citizens, whatever good they have, they say that all this good is because of you being like this, O Rama. So, um, in the Rama Raja, it is not just about the Raja having such love for the Praja. The Praja also have such gratitude and love for the Raja. And it's amazing. It's a kind of a utopian world and a world that all of us would hope to see in our lifetimes I think at this point in time Prem, we will take a little break before continuing on what happens next uh, dear listeners enjoy this uh, uh, bhajan on the other side of which we will continue the different aspects of Ramaraja.
2: we were talking about uh, Swami's description of a scene in Rama's court where he is giving a huge uh, discourse on ethical behavior and philosophy and spirituality to the citizens and one of the citizens responds saying that how fortunate they are to be living in, uh, in, in the rule of Lord Rama and I think this is again the point which I was making where you know the citizens are ready to accept what the king is saying because you know, there is something to be seen on the ground too. You know, he says that there is so much of prosperity. We have so much security. And and when we have all this to be able to receive this wisdom from you, we are so fortunate. So that again shows that you know you can't have one without the other. You can't say that being the man of the house, I will keep giving lectures or being the boss, I will keep giving lectures. There needs to be work in the ground, which people can see at the same time when you speak... You know, about the higher purpose of life, people will be ready to listen. And I think what better way can we, you know, what better example can there be than of Swami Himself? Hmm. You know, when Swami used to speak to us, the very reason that we were listening when Swami spoke about simplicity when Swami spoke about selflessness, we were ready to listen because, you know, it was, we were seeing it every day in Swami's own life, right? It was being backed by His own example.
0: Absolutely. Uh, walking the talk as modern uh, phrase puts it. It it is so important and in the next few paragraphs actually Swami describes this Ramaraja and I think uh, there are many many points uh, uh, other than just reading it out I see no other way of actually having a discussion on that there is nothing to have a discussion on that. Swami writes about how there are no diseases in the kingdom, there are no quarrels between husband and wife or children, disrespecting their parents and everything is in harmony and there is material prosperity, at the same time there is no greed, people are not desirous, they don't covet others wealth there is no show off of wealth Uh, you know, all the kinds of things that you feel would be part of a utopian world is actually part of Ramaraja and I wouldn't, though I am calling it utopian world, I don't think it is a proper Usage of that term because Swami writes that if you have Rama as the focus of your attention and if you have uh, Rama being the center of your life, it is indeed Ramaraja, irrespective of you know what you may call as the uh, economic condition, social condition, or political condition, whatever. It depends on whom you are centering upon. See these kind of statements we have heard even in Swami's discourses. On the face of it. Some of us might have committed the mistake of thinking it to be an exaggeration. Honestly, speaking for myself, sometimes it would look like that because Swami would say, you know, the degradation of morality is the cause for tsunamis and earthquakes. And uh, directly, it would seem very, uh, very strange because... How is that? How are they connected? How is somebody being deceitful connected to an earthquake? Because an earthquake is a geographical phenomena whereas someone being deceitful is a moral phenomena. But But when we really reach that advanced state of seeing oneness in all, we realize that there is no other. When there is no other, how can you distinguish something as a geographical phenomena or a moral phenomena or a political phenomena? That's why you know Swami would say Daiva priti papabiti sanganiti. There has to be morality in society and for that you need fear of sin, for that you need love of God. Love of God is a central uh, central point. And in that discourse when Swami said that the tsunamis and earthquakes you see is because of lack of morality in society, it just looks like a logical extension of that phrase, of that statement. Daivapriti, Papabiti, Sanganiti and I don't know Sanskrit but geographical stability, you know. That is an an extension of the same. And that is why that is why you see Rama being Rama because everything was centered around Rama. And we too can create that if we center around Sai, we can have the Sai Raja, Swami Raja. I feel all this description that Swami gives in the Ramkatara Samahini is beautifully summarized in one statement where Swami writes that physical illness, mental anxiety and moral downfall were totally absent. They are given equal importance. You know, moral moral uplift or having a high sense of morality is given so much importance, as important as being physically fit and mentally fine. So, therefore, we understand that Ramaraja is not just about economics, socio-economics, Politico economics or political, or it's not just about any of this, but it's definitely spiritual and moral. Once that focus is fine, the other things will fall into place because, as Swami says, a rich person is not he who has most but he who desires the least. And bringing in the spiritual aspect definitely gives us a more wholesome understanding of what Ramaraja is.
2: Right, you know, the spectrum of description is so beautiful because Swami says. You know, at one end, Swami says that every house has a, had a garden. You now, very interestingly, Swami makes a mention of that. Every home had a flower garden which was tended to with care, and which was uh, which had fruits and flowers throughout the year. Every home had pets. Swami says, you know, every uh, child in the house had a bird or an animal as a pet which was cared for very beautifully. So, one end, Swami is talking about the harmony within the home, and you know, the harmony with nature and around. On the other hand, Swami is talking about, as you said, the 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 moral and the spiritual focus of the citizens. And then Swami is talking even about the satisfaction. Where Swami says that each one was following the, you know, the uh, the trade and tradition of their own family, and were completely satisfied in it because there was nobody who was looking down upon them, creating Mm. that desire for them to grow. You know, into another profession or feel that that profession is superior and let me go there and I think we've, we've spoken about this only when you have a setup where you believe that within each of, your, each of the strata in society you have the ability to reach the highest you know the highest is not reserved only for a certain profession or a certain level or a certain caste in the society the moment you say that whichever caste you belong to the ability to reach the ultimate is there with each one of you You don't desire to go higher in a social uh, status because your focus is first of all spiritual and the highest can be reached through whichever profession or whichever status you are in. And and when you say highest, as you rightly said, it's not just about
0: monetary rewards. It's not that you have to pay the cobbler the same amount that you pay a nuclear scientist. It's not that. And even the cobbler does not expect that. As you said, what they expect is basic self-respect, And and that nobody looks down upon them. See, for example, this looking down business has gotten so deep into us. I remember when I had attended a wedding in coastal Karnataka, Mm -hmm. there was this uncle who was lamenting. He was saying that, you know, he's having so much of these uh, rubber farms. Uh, He's not my uncle as such, but I'm calling him uncle. He was saying that he's having all these rubber farms, but... He's worried about its future. I said, why will not your son take it up? He says, because my son wants to be an IT professional. So I thought that possibly an IT professional will be earning a lot. Maybe this business doesn't earn you a lot. I was shocked to find out that a person who taps rubber from the tree, mm-hmm. he's, uh, um, in quotes, a menial worker. You know, he just comes and he makes cuts on every tree every day so that the rubber sap oozes out and it collects and it can be used for making rubber. This rubber tapper, Makes eighty thousand rupees a month for working <laughs> four hours every day. Mm-hmm. I felt wow, this is tremendous. And how much will an IT professional? He said, yeah, his uh, if your son becomes an IT professional, yeah, he said, yeah, his starting salary will be about forty fifty thousand. So why is it that he's taking a lesser salary and ready to do more work and go away from his homeland, go away from his parents? Why? All because an IT professional. Is looked up, you know. You feel he's an IT professional. Oh, but oh, this is a rubber. You know, you're you're a farmer. This kind of uh, social uh, upgrade, uh, social kind of hierarchy that we have, that is most important. I think everybody wants to have a feeling that we are cared for and we are valued. That's all. You don't have to actually show that value in monetary terms. You have to genuinely show that value in heart terms. And I feel this recently concluded. Gram Seva shows exactly that. Tell me how much does a person benefit with uh, a few packets of food and laddu and one pair of clothes in a year. That is what I used to think when the Gram Seva started as to Swami what is the use of doing this exercise once a year you know because it doesn't help them anyway. It is when I myself went to the villages, I saw what a difference it makes. Because this was not about little food and a piece of cloth. But it was about telling them that we care for you. You are needed. You are part. And when we are celebrating Dasara, yes, like we give new clothes and we have a sumptuous feast among ourselves. Yeah, you two are part of it. Just making them feel a part of us made them feel so awesome. You know, uh, recently uh, during this Gram Seva, one of our team members Himanta had gone out shooting on the video camera, mm-hmm. and he says that he overheard one lady telling something. He turned to her and said, "Can you repeat what you said? I want to record that." She said, "Definitely." And I saw the video there. This old lady, she must be in her 70s. She's saying that I am never, I have, I am not part of Swami's village, but every year Swami makes me part of his family by this uh, Gramseva. He says, I may not be part of Swami's village also, but still I feel I am part of Swami's family, because even in my family, people don't remember me once a year and give something, but here is Swami remembering me, so I feel I am part of Swami's family. You know, all this, it just convinces me that this kind is not about equality in income or giving everybody the same amount, but giving everybody the same amount of feeling of being wanted. You may be a cobbler, a driver, an IT professional, but you are equally wanted, you are part of us. I think if that is gift, that is what happens in Ramaraja, it is not as if uh, a cobbler in Ramaraja earned as much as a farmer in Ramaraja, earned as much as a soldier in Ramaraja. But everybody of any profession felt equally wanted by Rama, equally wanted by the kingdom of Ayodhya, and I feel that is what brought Ramaraja.
2: Right, you know, talking of the Seva, I think, What you explained was very, very uh, appropriate because Swami would often remind us that the sequence of events which led to the Narayan Seva becoming the Gram Seva. It used to be a one-day Narayan Seva, I think on the 18th or 19th of November, earlier, which Mm -hmm. became this week-long or 10-day-long Gram Seva because Swami read about a mother who committed suicide. You know, if you really look at it, that's why people actually give up their life because when you feel that there is nobody... You know, caring for us. And what Swami actually did by... This one act of giving that one prasadam every year, at least once a year. You know, it was like Swami telling them, look, I am here thinking about you. So, that is not going to economically solve their problem. But just that fact that I can go through this problem because there is Swami sitting there and thinking about us. There is Swami that year after year... See, this entire distribution... I remember, I think the first two years we used to get the numbers from the local panchayat or something like that, where you get the number of houses in each village and what is the population roughly. This entire distribution could have been done through that setup of the government of the local panchayat. Hmm. You know, you just go and give them crates and crates of food and say, this is the Prasadam, get it distributed in the village. But Swami didn't do that. Swami said, you know, from from the setup that Swami created, Swami said, I'm sending my own students to you. You know, this is how important me sending this message to you is. You know, just like how we, when we spoke about, uh, uh, you know, Krishna going as a messenger, we spoke about Hanuman going as a messenger, Angada going as a messenger. You know, the person whom you choose to go and send the message becomes very, very important. And in the setup which Swami has created, Swami's students are very important in that sense. Hmm. And Swami is saying, I am sending them to your doorstep. I am sending them with this message that I am sitting here and thinking of you. So when you read the Ramayana and as we are, you know, repeating it over and over again, you might not be a king. And you you can say that I am not a king, so this is not a message for me. But it is that personal touch, I think, which each one of us can do, you know, being, being just a man of the house or being just a housewife or being a boss, being a team leader. Some of these lessons can be put to use even by us. You know, that feeling that I should be able to make everybody in the team feel important. I should feel somehow managed to convey this message to the person that whatever little or big you are contributing, that contribution is acknowledged and it is important. And I think that is what also comes in the next episode, which is one of the painful episodes. Probably we will not come to that this week or we will just have an introduction to that. But you know, that is, that is also one episode where Rama says that every word of every citizen, however small his role may be in the kingdom, his word is important for me, even though. Because I though it.
0: though we qualify our statements by saying however small his role may be, I don't think Rama ever thought like that. Because even when we say that you are important however small you may be, there is that background noise of we actually considering him to be insignificant.
2: Right.
0: You are though you are small, we give you importance, which means somewhere deep within we feel that silly or small only. But Rama never felt it like that. It was equal. Uh, everybody were genuinely and truly equal in this Ramarajya and uh, that is why you know one day one of these messengers are there you know Rama had this elaborate
2: I messenger think, system uh, before that one episode which we missed out is the uh, yes, conversation yes, yes. between Vasishta and, and Rama, uh, yes, Rama yes, correct. Yes. Right? And this point I think we had mentioned it much much before in the beginning where uh, we were talking about the birth of Rama and that point where, why do some of these sages who are so evolved, when you talk about Vasishta, Vasishta is called the Brahmarishi, which is supposed to be the highest stage a uh, sage can reach. Mm-hmm. Right? He has reached that stage and that is like probably the pinnacle of human achievement in the spiritual realm. So why does such a person hold on to a, uh, a royal post such as this, of being a priest of a king or of a, of a kingly clan? Why does he do that? And we were talking about how each of these people uh, had an inside info that the Lord is going to incarnate in this clan, and that is why they held on. In fact, this conversation between Vasishta and Rama is is the time when Vasishta really tells it out openly that that is the reason why he held on. Right?
0: Uh, in fa- he comes to Rama and he offers his gratitude. He says that see. Uh, there is nothing very glorious about being a chief priest to a family even if the family is the royal family because what is a priest's job is to do all the ceremonies auspicious and inauspicious whether there is a birth in the family or whether there is a death in the family whether it is for a winning merit or whether it is for atoning for sins whatever it is it is the priest who is called and uh, so therefore there is nothing very uh, glorious about a chief priest at the same time, Vasishta confesses, he says that it was Brahma, the creator, who told me that in this lineage, in this clan, the Lord Himself will be taking birth. And that is the only reason I continued to. I enrolled myself and continued to be the chief priest for this Ikshvaku dynasty. And he says that. With you, or oh Rama, my life is sanctified. My life is sanctified and he in fact offers a prayer. He says, Lord, let my devotion to you be undiminished. Let it grow stronger every passing moment. Let it grow big. Let it grow more and more because there is nothing worthwhile more than devotion to you. And this is what Vashishta tells Rama. And it's very beautiful because Swami in his discourses often would say that gratitude is very, very, very important. You know, when when you have been benefited, it's important that you express gratitude. It's not enough that you hold it in your heart. In fact, Swami would uh, state a mantra. He would state, I think, Kritagnyaghyaya Namaha or something like that and state that uh, the ruling uh, planet or the ruling deity for gratitude is the sun. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, Swami would uh, hint saying that... Uh, if you're in, if you're ungrateful, it's as good as you being blind. That is how Swami would say that not having gratitude is like you being blind. Sometimes even in the physical sense, not only in the uh, sense that you're not able to see the good of others, and therefore I think this is a very important lesson because Vashishta is such as you said is a Brahmarishi. He's a person of that stature. He's so lofty, and he didn't actually need anything but he decided on of his own volition to continue to stay as a chief priest so that he can get to be with the avatar when the avatar comes in a human frame and for that he is feeling gratitude and he is humble enough and wonderful enough to actually come and tell that to Rama saying Rama there is nothing I just want to tell you that I am very grateful to you for this and I just pray that my gratitude and love for you grows having said this Vashishta walks away. I think that's a beautiful message and gratitude for all of us to emulate.
2: Right. And and the fact that somebody who is so spiritually evolved like Sage Vashishta is coming and making this prayer, you know, give me more devotion to you and may I have this devotion in any number of births that I might take. It again validates the fact that, you know, Rama was telling in in, uh, his conversation with the uh, citizens where he said, the devotion to have devotion is the greatest achievement and you know you have somebody like Vasishta himself praying for that as the only boon that he seeks
0: correct and uh, at this point in time i think we go to the next we can introduce the right. next important episode which is uh, which is a very uh, sore point for many of those who read the ramayana and this is the point like you said we have to base it on faith and then go ahead and so with prayers to Swami, prayers to Hanuman and prayers to Rama, with all humility and love, we go to this episode where one of the messengers of Rama brings news of what a dhobi has been telling his wife. This messenger has overheard a dhobi, a washerman, talking something to his wife and he conveys that to Rama. Uh, before we go into what is that, that the washerman washer was telling his wife, I thought I should just make this point about messengers. Often it is stressed on the importance of a king having spies, uh, spies who report to him what they see. They call them in Sanskrit or Hindi as Guptachar, Guptachar meaning those who secretly move about. I think it's with a reason that Swami has used the word messenger here and not a spy. Because I feel the term spy and the usage of spy shows some kind of a fear in the ruler. And in order to overcome that fear, you have these spies who report to you. You usually have spies reporting to you only things that are uh, threatening the king or looking uh, dangerous for the king or such things, you know. But here it was messengers. Here it was not based on fear. Here it was based on love. Rama wanted to ensure that he doesn't miss out in taking care of his citizens in any way possible. And that is why he had them and that's why these are not spies but messengers. I think this point will become more clear as we proceed with this episode because if it had been spies, then the way Rama would act on the information given by someone whom we call a spy would be totally different compared to what the way Rama acted on the information that he received. The the way he acted on the information that he received makes it very clear that all these were actually messengers, messengers of love, messengers of love of Rama that Rama had, so that he can be constantly updated about his citizens, so that every moment of his day he can take decisions which benefit the citizens a lot.
2: You know, before coming to this uh, particular episode, Swami inserts one episode which probably will give us an idea of the way Rama was responding to some of these queries and uh, informations which was which was coming to him. Sami writes of an episode of one Brahmin who comes into the court and one day starts accusing Rama and saying that uh, you know the glory of the Raghu clan is declining, and he mm. says that there have been great kings, but today that glory is no more there and Rama gives a very patient ear to him, and this Brahmin goes on to say, "I think he loses his son his son dies, and uh, one of the signs of a very, very good king you know, i 'm sorry good rule is that no son dies before the parents die right nobody dies young that is one of the uh, features of a kingdom which is being well ruled so this brahmin comes and says that you know uh, uh, misery is befallen a kingdom a man has died before his father right and that is when rama starts inquiring what is the thing and then he finds that this brahmin son has died so the first thing rama finds out is is there any administrative flaw like, is it because of, you know, something which the, probably an ailing person does not get in time in the kingdom or something like that. So when he finds that there is no administrative flaw, he finds that this must be because of, uh, a personal, you know, indiscipline of that person, which has led to such untimely death. So then Rama finds out that what are the ways in which you can stop citizens from indulging in some mistakes like this, where even mentally they don't start going astray. You know, that is to, that is the detail to which Rama was, you know, administering. And there is a very slight difference in, in this kind of a rule. It's not about law alone. It is not about legality. Because every time we talk about legality, it only talks about, you know, are the citizens getting the right? You know, because one level Rama sees that. Is there any administrative law? Because administrative law is relating to a person's rights. But when you're talking about, uh, an ethical flaw which might have, might have led to a disaster like this, it's talking about some moral uh, flaws in, in the citizens. And the way you have to deal with that is completely different. It's, it's more got to do with the spiritual disciplining. So you can see that Rama's the response to the information which comes to him is not simply as a king, not simply as an administrator, but it's in so many levels.
0: Speaking of uh, legality and ethicality, I think legality is more about appearing right, appearing good. We have uh, cases where people have, uh, people intelligently evade taxes and they say that this is legal. Yes, what you have done is absolutely legal. But uh, if you look at it from an ethical or moral sense, you have used your intelligence to override a system. See, the system, the spirit of the system is to ensure that everybody pays taxes as per their earnings. But you have violated that spirit simply because your intelligence is such that you can overcome what is the flaw in the system. And therefore, though you are no, what you have done is not illegal, though you can't be tried in a court, though you can't be put behind bars, it's definitely unethical. It is appearing good, but it's not actually good. Uh, I think it's uh, nice that we are stressing this point because... Uh, the next episode, I don't think we have time for that prem this week. We will take it up in the next fortnight. But the next episode where Rama actually sends Sita to the forest, uh, that episode shows the importance of appearing good along with being good also. And uh, uh, I think that is an important lesson we can learn. We will stress on that when we come to that episode next fortnight. That it's not enough that if you are just good, you have to appear good also. Uh, it is uh, uh i remember that um, shloka you know which swami would say satyam kirti dvayam stiram satyam is truth and kirti is your reputation and one would, one would often wonder why is reputation being placed along with something like satyam why not satyam dharma the dvayam stiram but it's almost like satyam is what you do what that is what you are that is goodness and reputation is what people read of you you know what people think of you what it appears as therefore being good and appearing good are equally important and if you are good and you don't don't appear good it may result in some kind of a problem but that is the next episode that we are discussing currently when we speak about legality and ethicality i think if we are legal but immoral and unethical and we get away scot-free because we are legal. I think that is the case of actually not being good, but just appearing good. I feel that is far more dangerous than actually being good and not appearing good, because at least in being good and not appearing good, you are being true. at least you are truly good, though you may not appear like this. In this case, you are simply being a hypocrite.
2: And the other thing is, you know, when you want to be a ruler who is also correcting the people's ethical behavior, you're not only regulating people's actions and you know what they can do at a certain time in this one, but you're also trying to uh, discipline them morally and ethically in even their you know the way they approach life. And we we saw that discourse which Rama gives to the citizens. It's much beyond just a king or an administrator. If you want to kind of give that kind of a knowledge and that kind of a counsel to your people it becomes all the more important to be impeccable in your own appearance and in in the way people perceive your character and your rule. And that is why this extreme step which we see in the next episode, and as you said, we'll have to come to that episode the next fortnight, and that I think will be the last fortnight of Ramakatha, because this is pretty much the the second, last and the last chapter of the Ramakatha Raswaini.
0: So with that, dear listeners, uh, we hope that you enjoyed this satsang with Lord Sri Rama. We pray to Hanuman to bless us with devotion towards our Sai Rama the same way as he has devotion towards Rama. Grateful to Swami for this opportunity to have gone through the entire Ramayana and as Prem said in the next fortnight we will be concluding it. It has been an amazing journey. We are grateful to Swami for that. We will now conclude this with a song on the other side of which will be the segment Love to Love as usual. You can write to us any of your thoughts, share your feelings, your feedback. You can write to us at listener at radiosci.org. Thank you. Jai Sairam.